Welcome to It's All Politics from NPR News. I'm Ron Elwood. And I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I plead the fifth. Ken, you can't plead the fifth. You have to admit that you are, in fact, Ken Rudin, and you have been associated with this podcast criminally for the last seven years. <laughs> that is very true, but I am not one of Superman's girlfriends. No, but let's be fair to Lois Lerner. She actually is a very serious public servant, a bureaucrat who absolutely has some responsibility for what has gone on on her watch within the IRS. She's which admitted is now, responsibility. Which right. has now turned out to be an enormous and ongoing gift to not only the Tea Party, but the Republican Party and all opponents of the administration. And in fact, to some degree, the entire anti-tax movement now has a wonderful new thing to point but to. It's not only the Republicans and the Tea Party and the anti-Obama people who have problems. And the entire anti-tax yeah. movement. Yeah. Everybody a, who hates the IRS. Well, that's right, except that not everybody who hates the IRS is necessarily going to look at this particular instance and say, that means we shouldn't have Obamacare. The connection is that there is a an enormous responsibility for IRS in the administration of Obamacare because there, you know, is this penalty that you would call a tax. Supreme Court said it was a tax that would be administered by the IRS for those people who don't get health insurance. Look, I don't know if everyone who has been paying attention to this so-called scandal sees it in the same way. They do know that the person in charge of the IRS investigation of the tax-exempt status of political groups went before a congressional committee and pled the Fifth Amendment. Now, is it constitutional? Well, I would think, yes, of course, by definition, it's constitutional. But when you have an administration that seems to be reeling from one crisis to the next crisis to the next crisis, and with some questions, we don't have to say it's Nixonian or even Bush-esque. All we know is that, you know, there's some answers that have not been given. Forget about when did Obama know. Even if he didn't know, when did the administration know? President Obama says he first found out about this on May 10th when Lois Lerner announced what she had done or what the IRS had done. So I think the real question is when you see a person of the government standing before a congressional committee and saying, I plead the fifth, it brings back memories of scandals of the past. That's right. And anybody who has uh, been watching popular culture since World War II assumes that anybody who pleads the fifth has something to hide, something that they're afraid would get them into further trouble were they to answer questions about it. And so it doesn't sound very good. But Lois Lerner did the best she could to establish not only her reasons for taking the fifth, but also her sense of what she had done. I have not done anything wrong. I have not broken any laws I have not violated any IRS rules or regulations, and I have not provided false information to this or any other congressional committee. And while I would very much like to answer the committee's questions today, I've been advised by my counsel to assert my constitutional right not to testify or answer questions related to the subject matter of this hearing. What I don't understand is that if she's not going to answer any questions what about the opening statement that says, I have not lied, I have not violated any laws, and then she says, I will not answer any questions, I put well, the Fifth Amendment. Congressman Trey Gowdy made exactly that point during the hearing. She just testified. She just waived her Fifth Amendment right to privilege. You don't get to tell your side of the story and then not be subjected to cross-examination. That's not the way it works. She waived her right to Fifth Amendment privilege by, by issuing an opening statement. She ought to stand here and answer our question. It's um, a fair question. It is a fair question, but that is the way this has always operated, and we've heard this in the past. We've heard people from the private sector 
brought before Congress, and we've heard uh, any number of government officials come before Congress and say, in essence, we don't think we did anything wrong, but we can't really discuss it with you. And this is not what you would call an effective defense. She has this constitutional right as anyone else does. But in terms of tamping down the sensation that this has caused, of course, it only adds fuel to the fire. Yeah, I was surprised that Congressman Darrell Issa, who's the chairman of the committee, um, let her go as quickly as he did. He dismissed her. Let he her go. After two uh, attempts at getting her to answer questions, because, you know, Republicans would have loved to have her sit there and just let every Republican on the panel saying, did you know this? Did you do this? Did you know about this? And she could, again, embarrass herself or at least make a spectacle of herself by, again, pleading the fifth. But Issa almost said, okay, enough of that. For this reason, I have no choice but to excuse the witness subject to recall after we seek specific counsel on the questions of whether or not the constitutional right of the Fifth Amendment has been properly waived. Notwithstanding that, in consultation with the Department of Justice as to whether or not limited or use immunity could be negotiated, the witness and counsel are dismissed. That smacks to me of a decision that was made well before this moment, that they had already decided they were going to let her go after this. I suppose a cynic might suggest that the chairman wanted to make sure that the television bite was him and her, that we would see her take the fifth and we would see him uh, questioning her before she did so. And there wouldn't be a lot of other television footage of all the other Republicans on the committee beating her up. The image of, of Lois Lerner pleading the Fifth Amendment will always stay with me when I think of this event, scandal, episode, whatever. But what have we learned about anything in the past week? What have we learned what the administration knew, if the president knew anything, administration officials knew anything? What do we know? The scandals, if we want to call them scandals, and we're a little uncomfortable with that, it's kind of a prejudgment. The controversies, let's say, about Benghazi, which have been going on for a very long time now, about the IRS, also the seizure of telephone records uh, by the Justice Department from Associated Press uh, telephones. And James Rosen of Fox News. And then the, uh, the pursuit of James Rosen of Fox News. Now, these things happened in the past. The telephone thing with the AP was last year. The thing with Rosen, I believe, was 2011. And this is essentially dredging up things that happened in the past, but they're being brought out at a time when they all pile up and, in a sense, create this image that the administration is in the present going after all of these people in some sort of aggressive way. And uh, yes, it's all about trying to find national security leaks, and we want to talk about national security here in a moment. But it does create an impression, all of these things coming together, IRS, Justice Department, and so on, that some kind of immediate present campaign is underway to go after all these conservatives. Add that to an administration that seems to be unbelievably secret, uh, you know, again, we, we think of Nixon and we think of Bush and how what their dealings were with the press. But it seems like the Obama administration has more of an adversarial relationship with the media than an administration. In the one sense that they have gone after these security leaks right. in more of a uh, legal fashion, using the mechanisms of the legal powers of the government than these previous presidents had other than Nixon. And uh, by one measure, just how many people whose leak investigations were instigated, uh, there have been more under this president, six, than there had been under all presidents before. But I don't believe that makes most people think that this president is more at odds with the media than, say, Richard Nixon, or for that matter, George W. Bush. No, most people think that the media have been very friendly to yeah, Barack Obama. I think that's a very good point. I think because we all felt, a lot of people felt that the media 
and the president were in bed together during the 2008 and 2012 campaigns. Certainly 2008. Yeah, certainly 2008. And then when you see you know them going after the media, or at least you know trying to protect the, the administration's secrets, and then there's a, a spat between the administration and the media, you say, whoa, this is a, lover, a, a lover's quarrel. A, maybe even more than that, yes. maybe a breakup. Yeah, yeah and, and I think you can say that as effective as the Obama campaign was in 08 and in 12, in positioning their candidate on the issues and positioning positioning him imagistically in a way that would make him look good versus the specific Republican he was running against, that was done very well. What we haven't seen is those same people or people in those roles working for Obama as president, not as candidate, be anywhere near as effective in getting their message across. You think of Obama and his curt dealings with the media as of late, but then you also see him as a consoler in chief in the advent of what happened in Oklahoma uh, and Oklahoma City and Moore, Oklahoma. The people of Moore should know that their country will remain uh, on the ground, there for them, uh, beside them, uh, as long as it takes. Uh, for there are homes and schools to rebuild, uh, businesses and hospitals to reopen, uh, their parents to console, first responders to comfort, and, of course, frightened children who will need uh, our continued love and attention. You know, this, of course, is what a president does best, and I think President Obama did it very effectively. And this is not a political moment, but if you want to talk about politics in Oklahoma, I thought it was interesting to hear some Republican members of the Oklahoma delegation talk about how we need federal assistance Many of the same Republican members from Oklahoma who, of course, voted against aid in the aftermath of the Hurricane Sandy disaster now to his... Completely different. That was completely different. Well, 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 I mean, actually, it was different. That was a foreign storm coming ashore, whereas these were domestic tornadoes. Well, um, in fairness to Tom Cole, the Republican from Oklahoma, back during Hurricane Sandy, said, he's a Republican, he said, look, we need to vote for this disaster aid because you don't know when any of our districts, any of our areas will be affected like this. So kudos to Tom Cole, who had the same message during Oklahoma as he had during Hurricane Sandy. That's right. And when you look at the state of a presidency, uh, some of the measures that we look at, of course, are approval ratings, which have not begun to go south in the way that you would expect them to do, given the travails of the last couple of weeks. And then he has these opportunities to go before the memorial service in Oklahoma this coming weekend, and also to make a major speech to the National Defense University, what we used to call the War College, and the president can get up before that august group of national security personnel and make a speech about his policies on, for example, drone strikes and the Guantanamo Bay prison and a number of other things and be speaking as commander-in-chief and be speaking, I think, in this instance, as the person whose job it is to keep the country safe and who has a certain benefit of the doubt from the people because he is in that role. And yet, as our fight enters a new phase, America's legitimate claim of self-defense cannot be the end of the discussion. To say a military tactic is legal, or even effective, is not to say it is wise or moral in every instance. For the same progress that gives us the technology to strike Half a world away also demands the discipline to constrain that power or risk abusing it. Uh, That was the president Thursday at the National Defense University. Fight on for old NDU. (laughs) Well, you know something? I mean, I think the, the drone attacks have been very popular in public opinion, at least in the United States of America. But around the world, it's certainly not popular. It violates everything that people felt Obama would bring to the 
foreign policy after eight years of George W. Bush. So the president knows that he has support at home. And while obviously he doesn't want to completely end this drone campaign, he's also very aware of the legalities to this thing. And so I kind of think the speech on Thursday just made it clear that what he's trying to do is more in the confines of the law. It's a short-term, long-term consideration, really. I mean, in the short term, and cynics would say before he'd been reelected, uh, the president saw the glass half full, if you will, with respect to this policy. And he thought this was the best way to take out some of the people who seemed to be the biggest threat, people who seemed to be most likely to launch real effective attacks on the United States in an al-Qaeda fashion, 9-11 fashion. And they used the tactic knowing it was going to hurt us in the rest of the world among friends and foes. I believe Pew Research Center had a figure on George W. Bush's era in which American approval in the Arab world was down to 19%, and now it's down to 12 and that's largely because of the drone program. You know, uh, the, the calculations that the administration has to make with the drone program, we also saw in some sense on the Senate Judiciary Committee this week regarding immigration policy. There was a controversial amendment uh, regarding same-sex marriages that the Democrats sorely wanted to introduce, but they knew that it would lose a lot of Republican votes in the end, and ultimately that amendment was never offered. The amendment was going to be offered by Pat Leahy, who is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Democrat of Vermont. And uh, Pat Leahy believed strongly that there was a part of the current immigration law that was fundamentally unfair to gay couples. It means if you're an American, you fall in love with some of the, someone of the same sex from a different country and you get married legally, your spouse will not be treated like any other immigrant spouse would be, would be by your federal government. My amendment would change that. But that amendment did not get offered in the end, and it did not because the opposition from the members of the Gang of Eight, the people who are the prime sponsors of the immigration bill in the Senate, was just too overwhelming. Here's Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. To interject redefinition of marriage would be a bridge too far. We're very close, I think, to creating a product that will solve a very difficult problem a long time in the making. And I would just urge my colleagues to understand that this would fracture the coalition. I could not support the bill if we redefine marriage in the immigration bill. Lindsey Graham said, you have me on immigration. You don't have me on the marriage part of it. If you want to keep me on immigration, you want to keep my vote, you'll eliminate this uh, amendment. And obviously the White House heard this. Apparently the White House went to Chuck Schumer and said, look, this has got to be cut out of it. We need to pass this, even though it is an imperfect bill. But ultimately it did succeed. It came out of Senate Judiciary, a 13 to 5 vote. Three Republicans, Orrin Hatch, Jeff Flake, and Lindsey Graham, all voted for it. Now, of course, it still has to go to the Senate, where Leahy theoretically could bring up that marriage amendment again. Or someone else could. There are also other amendments. Labor is not happy. There, there was there was a, a voice vote to a Orrin Hatch amendment regarding foreign workers that a lot of labor unions disagreed with. They may cause some trouble with that as well. But again, even if it does pass the Senate, and the Senate is probably going to take it up next month, June 10th, is the date I saw as a possibility, then we still have the House that has to go through. That's right. And in the House, support for some kind of an immigration overhaul is still strong, but one that contains the key element of a path to citizenship for people currently in the country illegally, that is not getting support from the majority of Republicans. And so the key choice there is going to be, will John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, bring the bill to the floor without the support of a majority of his own party or will he bottle it up until he can get his own caucus to support it? 
You know, and speaking of Republican difficulties, I mean, John Boehner may have problems in the House with the immigration bill. What to make of the Republican situation in the Commonwealth of Virginia? Here you have Ken Cuccinelli, the attorney general, who is known to be a very strong social conservative. Tea Party guy, too. But he has been trying to tone it down lately, talking about jobs and the economy, trying to tone down his very, very conservative rhetoric. So, so Terry Moving McCall... Moving to the center. Well, yes, of course. And, and, and that's going to be difficult, but it's made much more difficult over the last weekend when the Republican delegates of the state convention named Reverend E.W. Jackson... Who calls himself Bishop. Bishop Jackson, Jackson right? Mm-hmm. Um, who um, Who's now the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor. They're a team. Tell me a little bit about E.W. Jackson. Well, suffice it to say that uh, the Reverend Jackson calls himself Bishop is... Uh, of a decided social conservative bent, and that while Ken Cuccinelli has not wanted to support equal rights for gay couples, E.W. Jackson calls them twisted perverts. He is going to be an enormously divisive figure in the state of this campaign. It's a dream come true for the Democratic Party because they go after the Cuccinelli-Jackson ticket. Jackson also, last year when he was running for the U.S. Senate, he said that Planned Parenthood caused far more harm to blacks than the KKK. Than the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, uh, is that what the KKK stands for? I thought that was the... I I just wanted to help you with that. Thank you. Because I knew you were using abbreviations. Right. And in fairness to his position, his position was that Planned Parenthood had supported abortion and that abortion had prevented many, many African-American children from being born. And that was his point about the KKK. Yes, that is what he was trying to say. But I mean, the point is, it's a kind of rhetoric that if you're any kind of a centrist or an undecided voter, this is the kind of stuff that pushes away. Look, there are a lot of Republicans who said Mitt Romney was too cautious. He was too much of a squish. Uh, John McCain, the same thing. E.W. Jackson is the real thing if you are of this philosophy. And so we could make the argument, okay, here's your chance, and let's see if you could run with it. But if I were a Democrat right now in Virginia, I'd be very happy. Well, let's make the point, too, that Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic nominee in Virginia... Who has his own problems. ...has his own problems big time and is going to provide endless material uh, with his past business and and political associations for the Republicans in making their ads. But let's also note that it's possible for Virginia voters in November to split their ballot. They They can vote for Ken Cuccinelli for governor, and they can then vote for the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor, who has not yet been chosen. Right. The Democrats in Virginia will have a primary on June 11th. And speaking of controversial figures, we have the return of Anthony Weiner for mayor of New York City. Oh, but wait a minute. Before we talk about New York City, Ken, and I know it's very close to your heart, close to all of our hearts, we should talk about the fact that a mayor was actually elected in the second largest city in the United States this very week. There's a lot to talk about this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Eric Garcetti defeated Wendy Gruel. Okay, let's go back to New York. Okay. No, okay. A little thing about Los Angeles. Uh, the first elected Jewish mayor in the city's history at 42 years of age. He is the youngest mayor in a century. But, of course, 100 years ago, he was much younger, much younger than that. It was the most expensive uh, mayoral race in L.A. history. $33 million. And yet nobody voted. And the voter turnout was 19%. That's something. 19%. And you would think, because mayoral races usually get people jazzed up. I mean, they really get enthusiastic. But this is another illustration of how Los Angeles has really become 
a community of communities. And many of the voters in Los Angeles looked at these two white liberal Democrats and didn't really necessarily feel that they had any skin in the game. There was a, you're absolutely right. There was not much difference between the two. Of course, officially, it's a nonpartisan primary. They right. happen to be Democrats. They um, happen to be Democrats. Why, why can't we go back to 1969 with Sam Yorty and Tom Bradley? Now, that was a race. Race baiting. Oh, absolutely. my God. That was great stuff. Oh, yes. Those big, big billboards that showed Tom Bradley's face looking darker than O.J. Simpson oh, on the cover uh, of Time uh, magazine. The Communist Will Party. your children be safe? The Communist Party, when they infiltrated the civil rights movement, they created Tom Bradley. 69 with an amazing campaign. I think Los Angeles voters miss campaigns like that. I think you and I miss campaigns like that. I miss Anthony Weiner. You know, of course. Oh, you know, you just him. when you thought he was gone well, no, he for was, good. He was hiking the Long Island Expressway, uh, but actually he was <laughs> tweeting. Uh, and, but you know something? There's something good about Anthony Weiner running in New York because New York is a very crotchety. <laughs> But the weird thing is that his campaign released this video just after midnight uh, on Wednesday. Look, I made some big mistakes, and I know I let a lot of people down. But I've also learned some tough lessons. I'm running for mayor because I've been fighting for the middle class and those struggling to make it my entire life. And I hope I get a second chance to work for you. New York City should be the middle class capital of the world, and I've got some ideas on how to do it. 64 of them, right on my website. Take a look. Tell me what you think. We love this city, and no one will work harder to make it better than Anthony. I will fight for you every single day. Thank you for watching. Right, I, I think you caught that, but in the middle, that was his wife, uh, Huma Abedin, and, you know, I have a sense of Huma, which is a joke we haven't used. We, we haven't no. used that in at least two weeks. <laughs> sense but of Huma? You, all right, usually we talk about the sense state of, of Arizona, <laughs> so we, we haven't ever said Huma. Right. Backing up, this has got to go in the pantheon of chutzpah. <laughs> In, in the pantheon of amazing political attempts to be taken seriously, I know I made some big mistakes. I let a lot of people down. I've learned a lot of tough lessons. And I promise I'm not going to put my private parts on Twitter again. Neither is Anthony Weiner. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week's political podcast. You can follow NPR's political coverage at npr.org slash politics. I'm Ron Elving. And I'm Ken Rudin. The podcast is produced by Bracton Booker and edited by Kathy Shaw. Join us again next week for It's All Politics from NPR. 